this is pure speculation on my part, but it would not surprise me if you have uh, non-state actors and potentially also state actors trying to understand the YouTube recommendation algorithm and trying to figure out how to elevate their um, voices and silence other voices. Welcome to episode 319 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and we're going to be expressing views that are not shared by uh, our institutions, our clients, uh, uh, our families, uh, or our pets. Uh, uh, I'm going to interview today uh, Ben Buchanan. He's been on before. He's an assistant professor at Georgetown School of Foreign Service uh, and a uh, fellow at Georgetown's Center for Security and Emerging Technology, and he uh, has a uh, good piece out about where AI might intersect with national security and cybersecurity, and we'll uh, uh, engage him on those issues. But before that, the news roundup with Paul Rosenzweig, founder of Red Branch Consulting, uh, dialing in from Costa Rica. Paul, great to have you. Thanks for having me, Stuart. Always a pleasure. And Mark McCarthy, senior fellow with Georgetown Law, Georgetown Business, uh, and the Future of Privacy Forum. Uh, uh, Mark, great to have you, too. Delighted to be here. And special guest, uh, uh, first-time caller, first-time guest, uh, Charles Michael uh, from Steptoe's New York office, uh, because we're finally going to get around to talking about something we didn't have time for last uh, week, which is the uh, uh, attorney-client privilege in the context of incident response, uh, I, and I figured I ought to ask somebody who uh, makes privilege claims uh, on a regular basis to uh, comment on that. Charles, great to have you. Great. Thanks, Stuart. Happy to be here. Yep. And Maury Shank uh, from our uh, uh, London office and uh, currently a, an investor and advisor to a bunch of tech firms. And uh, Maury, you told me you have a, uh, one of your firms is uh, just in uh, uh, beta. Is that right? Yeah, I've been working for a couple of years on an ed tech startup called LearnerShape. Uh, and if people are interested in checking out our beta test, um, uh, they can visit our website at learnershape.com. Good time to be doing remote learn, <laughs> learning of any sort. Uh, and I'm Stuart Baker, uh, formerly with NSA and DHS and the host of today's program. Uh, why don't we start with, because uh, my I, I just can't stay away from the end-to-end encryption topics. Uh, uh, Paul, Zoom... Um, has uh, had a lot of criticism for its security and uh, it has implemented or is implementing end-to-end encryption and it announced that the end-to-end encryption would be available for its paid accounts but not for its free accounts. They've taken a lot of heat for that. Uh, um, Where does that stand? Well, I mean, you've summarized it quite correctly. The uh, Zoom has taken a lot of uh, heat for its uh, security practices. Uh, a lot of it, I think, was more heat than light, which is to say that, you know, fundamentally, Zoom experienced a, what, 10,000-fold growth in its in its client base over the course of three weeks. The things that were going to take them three years to work on, they, they had to do in three days. Um, I think generally they've responded pretty well. Uh, this latest bit is uh, the deployment of end-to-end encryption for the Zoom 
for their Zoom video product. Uh, it was delayed in part because of the ongoing necessity of uh, Zoom continuing to enable access through the uh, plain old telephone system, POTS, right? They still, they've got a lot of clientele who have uh, people of a certain age who want to dial in, and that that made the integration uh, pretty difficult for them. Uh, now they're under the gun for uh, giving away, uh, giving this this capability only to their paying customers. Uh, I I have to confess, I I don't get that, right? Why they're uh, obliged to provide free services to anybody at all? It, it kind of leaves me puzzled, and the fact that they choose to. Uh, make their premium services uh, more attractive than their free services is is pretty much the standard business model in Silicon Valley uh, for the last, uh, I don't know, 20 years, right? You tease people in with something free and then you, you try and give them more and get them to pay you. Uh, I, I know that mo the, most of the organizations I've, I've worked with uh, have bought the, the upgrade because they want it and they want I mean, amongst the things they want is end-to-end -end encryption, though it's not uh, the be-all and the end-all. They want, you know, rooms. They want all these extra capabilities. So I'm not overly concerned with Zoom's decision to actually offer services for a fee. Yeah. Yep. I, uh, Maury, uh, my understanding is that, you know, there, there is encryption on, on uh, Zoom, even on the, the free accounts. It's just that the encryption ends and begins again at uh, uh, servers controlled by Zoom so that if uh, uh, moderators want to go in and see what's happening in a particular uh, uh, Zoom call, they could do it. They, they have plain text access as a, as a practical matter. Um, a, and uh, I got the strong sense from some of their defenses that they've had some serious abuses, like people scheduling Zoom calls where they abuse kids uh, uh, and let people uh, log on. And you can't identify those people because they've used free accounts that don't have any credit card or any data at all. Uh, so all, all if you want to stop it, you kind of have to go in and find it and turn it off. Yeah, I mean, you, Stuart, you've said uh, effectively what I was going to say. Um, Alex Stamos, who was chief information security officer at Facebook and is now at Stanford University, um, was an advisor to Zoom on these issues and had an interesting tweet storm on this this week, basically being supportive of the decision and largely on that basis um, that the business accounts are um, authenticated. They have credit cards. It's easier to chase down people and are presumably much less likely that people will use it for those kind of really nasty purposes um, where you do want to have some content moderation. Uh, although I agree with Paul as well that um, the end-to-end -end encryption is likely a, a business feature. So you do a, a fair amount of work involving uh, foreign wiretap uh, issues. Uh, are, are there issues uh, in other countries about whether end-to-end -end encryption is going to be allowed or are we still uh, uh, waiting for that shoe to drop? I, I think it's an issue in many countries. It was a huge issue in the UK. Um, the Cameron government, before it killed itself over Brexit, was really making a lot of noise about the going dark problem. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of other countries, countries like Turkey and Russia, that really care a lot about law enforcement access, um, 
you know, make a big deal about these issues as well. So uh, I think it's happening around the world. On the business point as well, I do a lot of my work is largely for big operators. And we see, although they have to comply with these laws, they get very few intercept requests. So what law enforcement is cared, cares about is access to encrypted consumer services. And I think Zoom's probably making them uh, re- relatively happy with the approach that they've taken. Okay, so um, Charles, now we're on to uh, the attorney-client privilege. The, this case is actually about 10 days old. It was a Capital One uh, decision. If I remember right, Capital One uh, had a contract with Mandiant uh, to do incident response and a variety of other uh, uh, cybersecurity advice uh, work when they got uh, uh, their serious uh, intrusion or, or breach. Uh, they went to Mandiant and said, we want to um, have you help us uh, with uh, response to this breach, uh, but we're going to have a, um, a law firm hire you so we can maintain the privilege. And uh, um, the effort to maintain that privilege was challenged in court went to a magistrate. The magistrate denied privileged status to uh, uh, Mandiant's report. Uh, And the question, I think, is what does that mean for incident response and for CISOs who are trying to make sure that they uh, protect the privilege? How valuable is the privilege? And most of all, uh, was this decision right? So let me turn it over to you for for those questions. Yeah, thanks, Stuart. Um, that's a good summary of it. Um, let me start with just some of the basic facts. Um, Capital One had hired Mandiant in 2015 and put Mandiant on a retainer so that it would be on call immediately if there were any cybersecurity incident. There was a data breach at Capital One in March of 2019, and Capital One immediately hired lawyers at the law firm of Deba Voice and Plimpton to advise on the response. Uh, Debevoice, in turn, entered into a letter agreement with Mandiant, um, but this is critical to the decision. The letter agreement called for Mandiant to do the exact same services that were already contracted for under the 2015 agreement, where no lawyers were in the picture, and called for Mandiant to be paid the same fees. And so Mandiant, of course, produced a report under the direction of Debevoice that analyzed what happened, what went wrong with the data breach, and the lawyers at Debevoice and the people at Capital One, of course, wanted to keep that uh, private and protected by the work product doctrine because Capital One, like companies, most companies in this situation, got sued. And the plaintiff said, wait a minute, we want to see that document. And the, the legal question presented by the case is, well, is this protected work product? So let me the stop you there for a second. Yeah, let me sure. stop you just yeah. uh, to, to kind of pull the focus out a bit uh, uh, further. Uh, In my experience, when you actually look at an incident response uh, uh, report and figure out what went wrong, the company and the CISO and their team of uh, security professionals usually doesn't look very good. Uh, almost all errors that result in breaches uh, look stupid to, uh, once they're fully explained. Uh, and so providing this report is really, uh, to, the, to the plaintiff, is really handing them a roadmap that says, this is how to make 
uh, uh, negligence claim against us, uh, and you just have to pull out all the mistakes that led up to the breach. Um, and so protecting that uh, report from disclosure to the plaintiff is the reason why everybody wants to maintain the privilege. Is that fair? Exactly. And um, I think the privilege can be important here because if you want to report to sort of candidly zero in on where the problems are and not use, you know, elliptical mealy mouth language, you want the report to be, you know, private and forthright. Um, but in the hands of the plaintiffs, they can say, look, you know, with the benefit of hindsight here, screw up A, B, and C and why your company was negligent in not protecting our data. And I, so I, I they, expect- they, they lost in this case. Uh, Capital One lost in this effort. Uh, and it yeah. sounds as though one of the critical factors was that uh, they already had the contract and all that the Debevoise letter really did is said, you know, that work you were doing for Capital One, now you're doing the same thing for us. And uh, the court said, look, if this all you're doing is something you would have done anyway, how can you tell me you're doing it because of the prospect of litigation? Exactly. The basic test for work product is, is the material created for litigation? And courts sometimes struggle with things that have dual purposes. That is material created for litigation, but other purposes. And the basic test is whether the document would have been created in substantially similar form, but for the prospect of litigation. So so the judge in this case had to do kind of a counterfactual. Okay, if there were no litigation, would this mandate report have been prepared in basically the same form otherwise? And the pre-existing contract with the pre-existing terms was critical. And also critical was the fact that the report was disclosed to four different regulators. And the judge said, look, there were obviously business purposes that they needed to get to the bottom of this pro problem. And the fact that you have some short letter agreement with you know, a law firm after the fact, uh, doesn't change the fact that this is a, a you know, fundamentally a business document. Now, so I, have, first, I think that's kind of a close call, but that's the ruling for now. The the report is not yet public. It's a, a decision by a magistrate judge that then effectively gets appealed to the district judge, uh, and and that's ongoing. So that's I, I mean, that that is important because a magistrate judge is not a district judge, not even close. And so uh, this will get another look. But it was close. So it, it could go either way. It seems to me uh, uh, when it gets to the district judge or or, or if it went yes. higher, which I probably won't go. Uh, so let me ask this. Uh, what would you tell incident response uh, firms or, or uh, uh, companies that are hiring them to do to uh, make it less likely they're going to end up where Capital One is. Yeah, sure. You know, you said a second ago, this is one that could go both ways. And in fact, it has gone both ways because Mandian has been central to a bunch of these cases. And there's a case in LA involving Experian, which the result came out a different way. And the magistrate judge in this case, the Capital One case said, look, what was different there is there was no pre-existing relationship and the law firm hired Mandian. Well, so one, one simple first step that a company could take is if you want to have a consultant like Mandian on the ready for an instant response, as weird as this may sound, Find some lawyer or law firm to be on retainer, and then let that law firm enter into the agreement with Mandiant. Um, that, that, that's step one. Then you have somebody on the ready, but it's channeled through legal channels and looks more like 
you know, illegal so, engagement. So here's the problem with that, Charles. You really want somebody doing incident response who already understands your uh, system and ideally has already instrumented it in ways that will allow them to uh, uh, figure out exactly what would ha what happened in, in, in their procedures. So you don't want this to be somebody who just works for a law firm and has never seen your system. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure that is as good as finding a way to hire the incident response team in some capacity. Uh, and, and my thought would be, why don't you hire them with one statement of work and draft a statement of work that the lawyer can use that gives you everything you need for your other purposes, but which is clearly written by and for uh, the uh, likelihood of litigation and pull that out and deploy it uh, in the event of a breach. Uh, absolutely. Th th that would certainly help to sort of have a t two different work streams so that the legal stuff could be segregated. And when you, when I suggested having the consultant on retainer with the law firm, I didn't mean to suggest the consultant does nothing and, and only shows up on the scene when uh, there's a breach. What's interesting is that Cap Capital One argued it before the magistrate judge and will likely argue to the district judge saying, look, we're basically being punished here for being prepared and having somebody on the ready. It would be absurd to have a rule that encourages you only to hire consultants for litigation. But that's I think that's one of the vulnerabilities with the decision is it creates those uh, in incentives. Got it. Okay. Uh, so let's uh, moving on to I, this feels like Groundhog Day, Maury. Chris Krebs uh, says that uh, there are foreign governments stealing COVID-19 research in the United States and GCHQ, which doesn't usually talk about these things, more or less said the same thing. Um, We've been hearing about this for a while. Uh, uh, is there something new in the stories that came out this week? I don't think there is anything too new. Um, you know, we've been hearing all through COVID-19 about hacking that's related to COVID-19. I was on the podcast one time when we heard about Vietnam hacking China. We've heard yep. a lot of general fraud-related hacking uh, related to COVID-19. Uh, both Krebs and Jeremy Fleming uh, here in the UK seem to be saying the hacking relates to vaccine research um, and other medical research that it's coming from China. I have no doubt that people are trying to do that, um, and we're probably trying to do the same. So I don't. Well, that think- I, that was that was what I was wondering. Is, is um, I, this is an area where you know they got COVID nineteen first in China. They they launched a bunch of research uh, uh, based on that. Uh, they might even be ahead in some of these uh, uh, research projects. Uh, do you think that uh, GCHQ or NSA would hack them to steal their intellectual property? I'm guessing they'd be they might be a little deterred uh, uh, by the having launched all this norms talk uh, but uh, I think the right answer is they should be doing that uh, it's sauce for the goose sauce for the gander I, I would assume they are and I would assume the CIA is probably trying to use human sources to do the same thing so um, and and I think some of the political noise um, of them talking about it is probably just that political as cover for what what's going the other direction 
Okay. All right. All right. Well, I, we had a whole bunch of copyright cases. We don't always cover copyright, but I feel obliged on occasion to cover them. Uh, uh, do you want to bring us up to date on uh, uh, copyright developments uh, uh, on the Internet this week? Yeah, well, there were three we had on the list, and I guess I'll run through them really quickly. You might want to jump in. But, you know, we had this uh, the Trump video, which what you think of it um, depends where you stand on the political spectrum as an effort to unite or a rather stunning bit of hypocrisy. But it, it was taken down by Twitter and Google because of copyright violation allegations, which seemed to be a pretty straightforward application of the DMCA safe harbor, which they're going to be pretty careful about, particularly given Trump's safe order, uh, executive order trying to undermine that. So, um, so you would think, but they, they didn't seem to know which particular picture or clip was offending. So I, I, I would I would describe this as kind of the worst of both worlds. It's um, the DMCA um, bots, which are notoriously overprotective of uh, intellectual property uh, and probably some Ideological, ideologically motivated takedown. Uh, we we see that every uh, uh, four years when the uh, Republicans settle on the uh, anthem they want to use for their campaign, and whoever wrote the 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 twenty year old rock anthem says, "No, you can't use that. You're Republicans." I and so my guess is it's a it's a bit of both, but I do think you know it it, it makes the case for a little more. Um, transparency and takedown if they cannot even say how you would fix it, which might be just take out one picture that lasts for a second and a half. I, uh, there is something wrong with the, uh, the takedown system. Okay. That's, that's, that's one. What's, what's the next one? Uh, the, the others are a little less politically controversial, although maybe more business. So Instagram has uh, announced that it's embedding APIs. So if you use the API to show an Instagram photo or video on your site, that it doesn't include a license to show the video. So you can link to Instagram and Instagram and its T's and C's has a right to give that license, but for some reason they've decided uh, that it doesn't apply to embeddings, maybe because they want you to actually link to their site uh, unless they've agreed to uh, license the embedding. And that's also upended some ongoing lawsuits that relate to embeddings of Instagram, um, something that people who do these embeddings care about. Yeah. So and you can understand why they why they're upset about it, because they think it's on the net. You know, you're not you're not exactly charging people to see it. I and I ought to be able to link to it. And I ought to be able to embed it to make it easier for people to get to. And the, the people who have put the photographs up are inclined to say, hey, the only way I get anything out of this is if people come to my site. Uh, and so I don't want to uh, give an embedding license without getting paid for it. That seems to be the fight. Yeah. All right. And at this one, I have to say, you know, I'm really usually um, skeptical of copyright claims. Uh, and I love the, the Internet Wayback Machine. But Brewster Kale, I, he's he's out there on this one. Yeah. So, well, this is the inner. Uh, it's not about the Wayback Machine. The Internet Archive, which runs it, has another program where they've been lending in copyright books. And they what they've done is they buy one copy of the book and they will lend one borrower at a time 
a copy that, or if they have three copies, they'll lend three at a time. They've decided during COVID-19 to suspend that limit on quantity so they can buy one copy of the book and lend in in, uh, an unlimited quantity. The, The equal quantities lending was arguably fair use, although not certain. I'm with you, Stuart, that their new policy seems to me a copyright violation. All the big publishers, Hatchet, HarperCollins, Wiley, and Penguin Random House have sued in the Southern District of New York. My guess is they'll get the um, the Internet Archive to go back to the previous policy. Yeah, I hope they don't bankrupt it uh, in the process because uh, the DMCA has punitive damages awards. It's it's like a plaintiff's lawyer's dream. Uh, I, and so um, uh, they 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 weren't really happy. Uh, that he was pretending to be a library and and, and lending it out on, on library terms, and they may just think this is a this is an opportunity to to tell people, you know, if you uh, make us angry, we will make you pay, uh, and that may be where where we end up. Uh, speaking of which, <laughs> the Center for Democracy and Technology is angry at President Trump for his Section Two Thirty uh, order and has sued him. I, uh, within a week of its publication, uh, uh, Mark, uh, what's the theory of this lawsuit? So I, I have perhaps a different take on the uh, the order and the lawsuit. So so let, let me let me do a level set. Um, going back to the order, uh, it does a lot of things, but uh, basically it calls for independent agencies to regulate social media companies in terms of their content moderation practices. Uh, and bans uh, them from uh, engaging in practices that do not align with their public representations or are deceptive or pretextual or inconsistent with the provider's terms of service or that are the result of inadequate notice or the the product of unreasoned explanations or having been undertaken without a meaningful opportunity to be heard. So so that. You look at that, and it's possible to have two different thoughts in your mind at the same time. One is that this order is an unconstitutional assault on the rule of law. But the second is that these proposals for social media transparency are pretty good. Now, the CDC. Yep, I'm, 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 I'm with you on the second. I, you know, I, it's, it's President Trump, so everything he does is going to be called a transparent uh, uh, undermining of the rule of law, and, and sometimes it's going to be right. But uh, I, I, I do think, yeah, the, he, and especially asking the FTC to look at, at how, what their announced policies are and whether they uh, follow them and to try to get people to adopt best practices. That's how the FTC got in the privacy build- business. They just made it up. They said, well, I guess we'll be the privacy enforcers and we'll go around asking whether people have lived up to their privacy uh, terms. Uh, uh, and if they haven't, we'll impose best practices on them. It's exactly the same business model. Yeah, I, I think you're right about that, uh, Stuart. But but CDT really has only one thought in its mind. And, and its thought is that this stuff is entirely unconstitutional. So so, so last week, it filed a case in the district court for the District of Columbia saying that the order is, quote, plainly retaliatory. It attacks a private company, Twitter, for exercising its First Amendment right to comment on the president's statement. Uh, the order says that also is alleged to be seeking to curtail and chill the constitutionally protected speech of all online platforms. Um, 
So it asks the court for a declaration that the order is unlawful and invalid, and, and it seeks a temporary and permanent injunction barring the administration from enforcing or implementing any part of it. Um, now, tempers are running high, to say the least, but, but this case might be just a, more significant than just a PR stunt. Uh, it really outlines the First Amendment case against government regulation of content moderation practices of the social media companies, including transparency. Um, so I, I do think it might have some some legs, not just in the current circumstance, but but longer term. Uh, and uh, and I think it's important to pay attention to that. I know the alleged violation uh, of, of the First Amendment rights is retaliation, but the substance yeah. of of the uh, uh, the uh, alleged retaliation is basically the attempt to impose these transparency duties. Uh, but but of course, that nobody has done what, that. Do yet. what you say? So, yeah. The, the the problem with that is uh, it is way premature to bring a lawsuit over uh, the imposition of uh, procedures and requirements that haven't been imposed yet. Uh, and, and so that's why they had to go with. A, a a legal attack on the federal on federal action that is unique to the Trump administration, but which began on like a uh, week one, which is, uh, come on, you read his tweets, you know he's a racist, you know what he was thinking when he did this, so strike it down as a as a violation of uh, uh, equal protection. And this is uh, the same, but with respect to uh, um, the First Amendment, uh, they say read his tweets. He's mad at us. This is why he's doing it. That's an illegitimate motive, and therefore you ought to strike it down. That got some traction with judges and probably in San Francisco more than most places. I'm not sure that it has lasted you know, as well as it started. Uh, uh, and my guess is that um, uh, either some judge or the Court of Appeals is going to say, you know, uh, uh, take a deep breath and call us when something actually happens. Uh, but we'll see. All right, Facebook's getting worked over by its employees and by everybody uh, on the left for not having followed Twitter's lead to, uh, and um, taken Trump's statements and condemned them as uh, inciting violence or as lying about uh, the likelihood of voter fraud. Um, and Zuckerberg's holding firm, but I don't know. I mean, this is just, to my mind, uh, Mark, this is just an example of uh, working the ref. Uh, and everybody does it. Uh, and it's just... Uh, um, unlucky for Zuckerberg that along with uh, whatever it is, 50 or $100 billion, he, uh, he has to uh, be the ref and get worked. And, and there were reports today that uh, he's asked the Facebook people to reconsider the, the policy on, under which he, uh, he allowed the tweets to continue up there. So it, there's some sign that the, if it's working the ref, it, it, it's working. <laughs> well, of course, that's why you work the rest. It's because it, uh, it it pays dividends. Uh, it, uh, all right. Uh, um, and I see Snap, as in Snapchat, has, has decided to stop promoting Trump's account uh, because his tweets incited violence. Uh, uh, same, same basic uh, deal. Uh, uh, everybody in Silicon Valley is virtue signaling, huh? Yeah, this is the same rationale as the what's behind the CDT lawsuit, the you know, the, the social media companies have their own autonomy and, and they can grant access to their uh, special promotion platforms to whoever they want. 
and they, they, don't, they don't have to be accountable to the world for doing that. Uh, and I think that's the, the, the theory behind the SNAP uh, action as well as the CDT lawsuit. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm sorry Nate Jones is not here. He would love this. Uh, he, he is always looking for uh, uh, evidence that it's really a bias against the left wing and in favor of the right that uh, is in operation in Silicon Valley. Uh, 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 Paul, did you study the, uh, the story of the Twitter user who tried to imitate President Trump uh, to see how long he'd last on on Twitter. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's a wonderful story. I mean, it does reflect um, uh, the clear reality that President Trump uh, is also working the ref, right, and is and is getting uh, uh, different treatment than uh, than an anonymous person who tweets the exact same words, uh, whether or not yeah, whichever side of that of the work in the ref dispute you come down on, uh, the reality is that, uh, you know, Trump is, is, is a case of one, a, a class of one and is being treated sweet. Well, maybe, a, what? yeah, maybe, maybe I, 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 I do want to salute the user. I, I have done this a couple of times with my Facebook account. Uh, you know, people report that they got taken down for posting certain things. And so I posted them to see if I would get taken down and I have not gotten taken down. So, uh, it, but I, I realized that when you do this, you're kind of putting your account at risk. Uh, now for this guy, uh, putting a Twitter account, uh, that you opened, uh, in a pseudonym at risk is no big deal. deal. Right. Yeah. yeah. No, I think that's right. I, I mean, I'm not sure why you dispute the factual premise. He, cl- he got, he got wiped you know, so here's here's my yeah here's what the reason I'm I'm not sure about it. Um, I assume part of, of getting taken down is you have to get complained at about. Uh, and his Twitter handle was something like "ban the prez." Uh, <laughs> a, or or uh, when will when will Trump get taken down? Uh, so if you read the tweet and then you read his handle that you'd realize what he was doing and you'd be a little less likely to, uh, uh, call up and try to get him banned. Uh, yeah. now, it, it, it right? could also have been an automated, uh, uh, a bot that, that found the, the problem. But by, by the way, this is not a surprise. I mean, Twitter says that they treat the president differently. It's not as though they've said, I'm going to yeah. treat the president the same as everybody. This, this is just proves that their policy is what they say it is. Yep. I, I think that is probably right, uh, and for for reasons that completely transparent, sense. right? Which is exactly what we want. <laughs> yes. Okay. I've, all right. So it's a victory for transparency. We're 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 enthusiastic about uh, more of these uh, uh, experiments. Uh, I have uh, suggested to various people, if and uh, frankly, uh, Hewlett Foundation, if you're uh, listening, you ought to fund this. That we uh, go out and create. 400 fake accounts on all of these uh, uh, places, uh, 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 social media, and start um, testing whether they actually enforce their rules in an even-handed way and exactly what rules they're enforcing and how. It would be fun, uh, um, but uh, it's kind of expensive to create a fake account and use it this way because you're going to burn a lot of them up. There is clear Justice Department interest in an antitrust suit against Google, probably focused on ad tech and advertising dominance. Uh, I, I, I feel obliged to say that, even though this is all rumors and we know nothing uh, uh, about it to, to speak of, because I don't want listeners to be surprised. This is almost certainly going to happen, is my guess. Uh, yeah. uh, 
and, and the, the Israeli government has sent out notices to their water plants and uh, power plants saying change your passwords. Basically, the uh, um, sense is that the Iraqis have been hacking these things. Uh, and indeed, the Israeli government probably already uh, uh, counterattacked, uh, uh, going after port activities in Iran. Uh, um, a, one thing that, that struck me uh, is if you're screwing with water uh, purification, sewage treatment plants, um, you're screwing with some of the biggest chlorine uh, uh, deposits in uh, urban areas that you could find. And that's really dangerous stuff. So um, while you might think, oh, well, they're going to they're gonna mess up the sewage, uh, that's not the problem. The problem is that uh, if uh, we're not careful, we can see a Big chlorine gas uh, release, and that would make a and that would that would result in multiple deaths, is my guess. Uh, and finally, uh, uh, German intelligence is warning that the Russians are hacking critical infrastructure. The, no surprise there. And reports from Kaspersky of a very very sophisticated attack on industrial firms, uh, uh, and not much speculation about who it might be. Uh, I will offer the following speculation: if Kaspersky wrote the report, it probably wasn't the Russians. Uh, and uh, um, uh, that would raise the question about who else might be doing really sophisticated uh, targeting of industrial uh, control systems. So that's it for uh, uh, our interview, our, our uh, news roundup. Now let's go to our interview with Ben Buchanan. So Ben, You've been on the program before at least once, maybe, maybe twice. Uh, you were on when, uh, when you finished your book. That's what I thought. Uh, uh, three Pete, that's pretty impressive. Uh, uh, Ellen Nakashima has at least a four Pete, uh, but uh, uh, this is pretty good. Uh, your book, The Hacker and the State, what, that we talked about uh, before, how is it doing? Uh, um, I don't expect that you're in the New York Times bestseller list, but are you hearing lots of uh, feedback? First of all, any company with Ellen is always good company. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's doing well. I think, uh, I think people in the coronavirus era have a lot of time uh, to read. I don't think I'm a New York Times uh, bestseller, but always, uh, you know, now that I'm on the podcast with you, I'm sure your listeners can change that with your with your audience. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I look forward to it. So the reason I wanted to talk to you today, though, was a report you wrote since the book, uh, basically trying to come up with a national security research agenda for uh, how AI uh, will work uh, in the context of cybersecurity. Uh, uh, and uh, let me just ask you, uh, how come you decided you wanted to write this report? This is essentially uh, a research agenda for us and for anyone else who is interested. And when I say us, I'm referring to the cybersecurity and, and AI project at the Center for Security and Emerging Technology at Georgetown. Um, CSET, the broader center, has been around for about a year and a half. It's a big effort to, to study artificial intelligence and national security. The cybersecurity AI project is more narrowly scoped within that, uh, funded in large part by the Hewlett Foundation. And we, yes, and I have uh, to say, I have to say right now, uh, the Hewlett Pe Foundation could have been funding my idea to create a whole bunch of fake accounts so we could test to see whether the social media was applying their uh, 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 takedown rules uh, uh, in an even-handed manner. But no, they had to fund you instead. Well, uh, what can I say? 
Uh, you, know, you put AI, you put AI in things these days, Stuart, and people think you're smart. So maybe, maybe yep. you could put AI in your next proposal. I'll, uh, I'll suggest that. <laughs> no, I, I, Hewlett, Hewlett ran a very rigorous process uh, and and uh, funded us, and, and we have a good uh, team that we've hired. And I think a lot of papers that we hope to write in the future, and that academics like myself usually write, are meant to lay out answers and say this is what we think. Um, this paper is a little bit different, and it's meant to say here are some of the questions we think are important. Here are some of the questions uh, we are studying or want to study in the future. And here, here are questions that anyone else who's interested could, could jump in and study because there's plenty to go around. So I, I think uh, the, the paper is a, an agenda of things of interest. And it wouldn't surprise me if we look back in two years or four years and say, yeah, these, these subjects on the paper turned out to be really good questions and there was a lot there. Or it wouldn't surprise me if some of the other subjects we look back and say, well, all we did was debunk some of the hype around AI and cybersecurity, and that's an accomplishment too. And this really isn't a terribly fruitful area of research. So it's not meant to give the answers. It's meant to give a roadmap to what we're trying to do. So it feels a little DARPA-ish, right? Uh, what are the technologies that actually we should put some money into it to see if operationalizing them is possible and would make a difference. Uh, so this is, a, a, we could view this as a shorthand piece of free advice to DARPA about places it could be uh, putting its money. Like Ellen Nakashima, DARPA is good company, so I'll, I'll happily take that. So you looked at offense and defense in cyber uh, uh, security. Uh, um, just based on what you were able to see, which do you think artificial intelligence and machine learning is most likely to uh, help? This, of course, is the, the big overarching question. I think a lot of the hype is around offense, totally based on very provisional analysis. I think there's more to say for machine learning on defense uh, in cybersecurity than machine learning on offense, in part because the offense can do a lot of what it wants to do already with what we, what we might call traditional forms of automation. So not using neural networks or anything fancy, traditional heuristic-based forms of automation gives the offense a tremendous amount of power already in cybersecurity. Um, so the, the question that comes up again and again on the offensive side is, does machine learning actually get offensive actors anything they don't already have? Whereas on the defensive side, I think, given the, the plethora of data involved and the like, there probably is a clearer path to impact on the defensive side, at least in the near term. Yeah, on the offensive side, I was persuaded that spear phishing at scale was something that AI could do well because basically it would mean you you take a whole bunch of potential targets and you mine their public social media for cues and things that might work and you compare them to things that worked with people who had similar uh, profiles and you just start spitting spear phishing at them. I, I, and I, I'm, I'm guessing, you know, we're all pretty sophisticated. We, we know that we don't have any friends who left $20 million uh, with a Nigerian prince. Uh, so we're not going to fall for that. But it wouldn't be that hard to kind of start knowing the names of our relatives and uh, uh, the sorts of circumstances they're in to know whether an appeal that says, I'm in this country and I just lost uh, my money, please wire me uh, something so I can get out of jail or whatever. You know, that, that with some of my relatives, that, that would be entirely probable. I <laughs> And with others, not so much. So I AI could determine which of them, um, which kind of appeal and which names and uh, stories ought to go together uh, and do a much better job of spearfishing, a uh, much faster job, at least, of spearfishing than the current 
uh, human hand curated social engineering, don't you think? That's right. I think I think uh, as we say in, in the report there that there's some reason to think that that the language uh, tools that that we've seen with AI over the last couple of years might might lend themselves to more capability in spearfishing. It's worth saying at the very top of the food chain, what's sometimes called whaling, when you're targeting a particular executive or this is a, a high end operation and the spearfish is one part of a broader effort. The scale doesn't matter that much because you're going to want to get that right and you'll have a right. human do it. But I think what you're talking about is some kind of middle where you you would get a lot of benefit from the scale, either because it increases your profit or, or something else. Um, and you don't need to be as intricate because the failure, the consequences of failure aren't that bad. Um, that's where it's, it's plausible, I think, that, that machine learning, uh, in particular, some of the, the tools like GPT-3 um, could help. Okay. Anything else? What, what, what else do you think is... Uh likely to help the offense uh, um, that uses AI? Probably the most significant area right away is the discovery of software vulnerabilities. Of course, that's a subject. So this is super super fuzzing. Uh, Yeah, exactly. Super uh, fuzzing, if you want to call it that. A subject of of great interest on this podcast and and other cyber debates is finding software vulnerabilities and what do you do with them once you find them. Um, I think there's, there's modern evidence to suggest that uh, machine learning could um, enhance some fuzzing capabilities or or aid the process of a skilled person um, in fuzzing. At a minimum, it probably could increase the the effectiveness of fuzzing tools. Fuzzing, for those who don't know, is the process of finding these these vulnerabilities using a particular uh, kind of software. Um, so I, I think that's probably an example more so than anyone else where we, we've got a clear evidence of um, machine learning tools uh, holding some promise. And that would make it would make sense that uh, you know if I were a big intelligence uh, agency, I'd probably invest in that because I would get uh, scale out of that. Uh, not everybody could could immediately follow me into that uh, area, uh, and I could find a whole bunch of zero days faster than anybody else. That'd be worth doing, probably. Exactly. Again, the the theory is is pretty apparent. The practice is harder to know, but in theory, if if an intelligence agency um, could find powerful vulnerabilities or, or sequences of vulnerabilities that they could exploit um, that others did not find, that would be worth a pretty substantial investment. And um, they would love for it to be the case that others could not uh, deploy machine learning fuzzers and, and there'd be this, this reservoir of vulnerabilities only they could find. Again, that's the theory. Okay. Uh, we'll see how it checks out in practice, but that's a pretty clear way, at least in theory, where machine learning could benefit the offense. So you said you thought defense would actually end up better off at a guess. Uh, in what way? Machine learning is at its best when you've got large data sets. And computer networks generate a lot of data. And I think if you look at uh, a lot of the platforms out there today for um, defending computer networks, they offer the promise of using machine learning to sort through this data, find, anomaly, find anomalies, detect malicious behavior more quickly. Uh, and act on it. It's worth saying there's a lot of hype here too. Uh, I think it's almost become a trope that uh, you just add machine learning and maybe a little blockchain, and you can get uh, funding in Silicon Valley for your cybersecurity startup. I think we're on the I think we're on the downhill side of the AI for cyber defense uh, uh, a hype cycle. That was like a that was sort of so 2019. Uh, uh, I do, I do uh, think so. Yeah, I, I thought we hit 
peak AI on cyber defense hype when I started to see ads in airports for it. It's like, okay, I think we've, <laughs> back, when we, back when we were able to go to airports, I, I think we've we've you know, hit the crest of this wave here. Um, but hype aside, venture capital money aside, I do think um, the technology has some some promise in this area because of the the capacity for large data sets. Um, it's worth noting it it probably is hard for many startups to do. It requires a talented team. It requires um, significant capital investment. But I think um, the the path to impact is probably shorter and more apparent on the defensive side for because of the data uh, the defender has access to. Okay, so now I want to go meta on you, uh, which is uh, offense against the AI offense or the AI defense. Uh, in other words, is there a way? to essentially hack the other guy's AI. Yeah, uh, and this I actually think is some of the most fruitful area of what our research is going to be is sometimes it's called adversarial learning or you prefer the cybersecurity of AI systems. If we've talked thus far about how AI impacts cybersecurity, how AI changes offense and defense, this is now flipping the, flipping the coin and saying, how does uh, cybersecurity change AI? And one of the remarkable things about machine learning is that it was built for non-adversarial environments. Um, it was built to get people to click on more ads, to recommend movies, to recommend products. And in many cases, um, it's not the systems are not built for national security environments in which there's a dedicated adversary. And we think that that's an area of concern. Um, and there are technical reasons to support this. Again, the field of adversarial learning looks at how these um, neural networks that underpin machine learning work and looks at how they break. And we've seen some pretty remarkable um, weaknesses in machine learning systems that could be exploited in adversary. And that, that applies well, the in the cybersecurity context and also more generally. So the, the thing I, because I'm interested in uh, uh, takedowns in section 230, I paid attention to the YouTube story where um, for uh, at least half a year, if you use the phrase Wu Mao, which is basically the 50 cent army uh, uh, in China, in, in comments in YouTube, uh, it was taken down. Nobody knew why. No one knew uh, what, uh, uh, what was happening in that context. It was just discovered. Uh, YouTube doesn't know why it happened. And it occurs to me that that feels like a kind of poisoning of the uh, AI or an adversarial approach to the AI that is making decisions about takedowns. Uh, if you can persuade uh, 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 YouTube's AI that Wu Mao is just uh, toxic, uh, where you'll start taking it down wherever it's used. Uh, uh, and uh, is that the kind of data poisoning that you had in mind in terms of adversarial uh, AI? It's, it's certainly part of it. Uh, that's one kind of attack. When you've got a machine learning system that takes inputs from users in the wild, there's the risk that those users will coordinate to uh, teach the system something you don't want to learn. The YouTube example might be that. I don't, I don't think we know. One place we have seen it is, uh, I believe it was Hong Kong, but maybe it was elsewhere, maybe it was somewhere else. Uh, students were combining to to get uh, schoolwork apps delisted from the app store by giving them bad ratings. So <laughs> that sort of anytime you've got a machine learning environment that takes action in response to user behavior, there's a possibility for coordinated manipulation of that machine learning system. 
Well, and you remember Microsoft. Microsoft released a uh, uh, a chat bot that said, oh, we can, bot, you, you, you like can, yeah. yeah, exactly. You you can train her, and uh, of course, all the griefers immediately trained her to spew racist and uh, uh, sexist uh, sentiments. Uh, but uh, actually, let me ask this: If China were testing data poisoning. Uh, do uh, you think this would be a way to do it? Uh, I mean, they, they, this might actually be the first example of data poisoning uh, that we just stumbled on six months after the experiment began. This is pure speculation on my part, but it would not surprise me if you have uh, non-state actors and potentially also state actors trying to understand the YouTube recommendation algorithm and trying to figure out how to elevate their um, voices and silence other voices. And I think yep. there's anecdotal evidence of that. Again, what you just described could be, I have no inside inside uh, into it, but it wouldn't surprise me if, if this is already an active uh, terrain um, that, yep. that we don't know the details of. This is why Hewlett should fund all my fake accounts because the Chinese are ahead of us. <laughs> Always be close, right. Stuart. I like it. <laughs> okay. Um, it, what else in adversarial learning do you think is going to show up? It's not just poisoning the data. If you can get in there and poison the way the data is delivered, you don't even have to touch the data. You just have to, 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 to find a way to tweak uh, how it's presented to the machine, right? That's right. So so machine learning systems are, are vulnerable to all the same kinds of software vulnerabilities that other cybersecurity systems are vulnerable to, and if you can if you can manipulate the pipeline of information that they see, you can manipulate the output. If you can manipulate how the systems process information, you can manipulate the output. Probably in addition to that, the one of the most remarkable and and kind of I don't think it's an exaggeration to say mind blowing uh, uh, sorts of adversarial attacks are what we call adversarial examples. And if you imagine a machine learning system that's just meant to do image classification or image recognition. Um, you show it something, it tells you what it is. An adversarial example is a, a technical way of exploiting, for lack of a better term, how the machine learning system thinks and taking advantage of how the machine learning system thinks differently than a human. So an adversarial example changes the image presented to the system by just changing a few pixels. No human would ever notice anything is different, but it dramatically changes how the machine learning system classifies um, so you, the you the, there was an example. There was an example probably six months or a year ago where people took a few pieces of tape and put them, you know, maybe two by two, one by one, and and put them on a stop sign, and said that it would change uh, most uh, autonomous vehicles' uh, reading of the sign to say it was a fifty mile an hour. Uh, speed uh, limit rather than a stop sign, which, you know, uh, it, it was striking because it, it didn't look as though you were changing stop to 50. Uh, you just stuck up a few pieces there. Is this what you get by running the neural network in reverse? You talked a little bit about that. I was fascinated by the idea that uh, you could actually extract the rules that the uh, um, AI was using by somehow reversing all of the probability calculations that go into the uh, uh, the various neural links. Yeah, essentially what you're doing is you're, you're trying to find uh, what in computer science you'd call edge cases where the machine learning system 
um, fails. So it classifies all of these actual uh, signs, let's say 50 miles an hour, as 50 mile an hour signs. But you ask the question, what else does it classify as a 50 mile an hour speed limit sign that is not, in fact, the speed limit sign? And how can I subtly manipulate a stop sign to look like this 50 mile an hour speed limit sign to the machine in a way that doesn't appreciably change how it looks to a human? And we have is found this all just kind of random fuzzing to see how it works? Uh, uh, or is it possible to by running the calculations backwards, because in many cases, the algorithm is known, um, a, you can actually say, I see what it's doing here, and I see that there's a hole in what it's doing that I could exploit. It's closer to the latter. I, I wouldn't use the term fuzzing because that has a different technical meaning, but essentially it's trying to, to optimize rather than to improve the neural network, to optimize to break the neural network, to find these edge cases that can be exploited. And it's worth it's worth pointing out that this is a, a pretty recent development in machine learning. Maybe in the last five or six years or so, it's really gotten a lot of play. But um, it wasn't on the radar screen much before that. And we've seen a pretty remarkable uh, bit of progress. The stop sign example is a famous one. Another one that was quite quite striking was for facial recognition systems. Uh, Carnegie Mellon had, uh, I think it was computer science grad students, put on glasses that looked like pretty reasonable glasses, maybe a little bit quirky, but... Um, pretty reasonable glasses, and it would dramatically change how the machine learning system uh, identified them. It, w- it would take them from a CS grad student to a famous actor or actress just by putting on Well, it's, it, it, it's it, everybody who uh, reads Superman comics understands that. You just put the glasses on and you're Clark Kent. It's no problem. I think it's, it's probably coming to a Zoom feature near you, right? Forget the background. <laughs> just just do the, the foreground. Yeah, they, exactly. They they offered to, to blur my background. Uh, I would really like to see if they couldn't blur the foreground a little. Um, all right. I so last uh, uh, thought here. Um, if it's good for uh, spear fishing or whale fishing uh, at scale, it surely is good for propaganda at scale, isn't it? Yeah, this is something we're very interested in, and I think um, something that that deserves a lot more attention given a recent development. Um, which is a system called GPT-3. I think, Stuart, you and your listeners are familiar with GPT-2, uh, which was the, the predecessor. Um, and, oh, yeah, that was garbage. That, that, that was the, we, we actually ran it. We, we tried it on the, uh, on the episode. Certainly need a lot to – left some to be desired. Um, GPT-3, yep. about 100 times bigger in its neural network, so 175 billion uh, parameters in its neural network, which is just gigantic, uh, even by modern standards. And uh, I thought it was remarkable, um, some of the, the text that it could produce, uh, put it together by uh, a research lab in California called OpenAI. They have not released it, so you can't go and try it for yourself, but they did show some samples. Um, they, showed, uh, they showed it to, uh, to, to readers who, in many cases, did worse than random chance identifying whether the text was written by a human or a machine. So the question, of course, that follows is, um, could a similar system be used to scale propaganda? Or more simply, what if the Russian bots of 2016 were actually bots and not people? And again, I think there's a lot of hype and a lot of speculation here. Uh, our job is to cut through that hype and, and figure out uh, what's realistic. But this is certainly an area in which we've already um, begun, begun study. 
Yeah, that's uh, the, for sure. We're going to see that. Uh, I agree with you. I I think the OpenAI guys are uh, have been hyping their technology, and if they won't let you play with it, then it's because if you played with it, you'd find a whole bunch of stuff that wasn't very impressive. That's my guess. Uh, but uh, sooner or later, somebody's going to get there, and then uh, we won't be able to trust Twitter, huh? <laughs> uh, okay, Ben, I, uh, thanks so much. This is a terrific tour of uh, uh, cyber uh, security, national security, and AI. Uh, um, and uh, uh, thanks also to Paul Rosenzweig, Mark McCarthy, Charles Michael, and Maury Shank for joining me on the News Roundup. This has been episode 319 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Please do send us more guest suggestions. I'm getting them uh, uh, at cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter, and when I feel like it and have a free evening, I will uh, send out previews of the topics we're going to cover. Uh, I've been getting uh, comments on LinkedIn as well from people who want me to cover stories. The reason we went back and did the uh, story on uh, the uh, attorney-client privilege is I got uh, a fair number of very thoughtful comments on LinkedIn and decided that really we owed it to our audience to dive deeper on that. So please do follow us wherever you find us uh, and leave us a rating. We need ratings. Uh, uh, there's a nutcase who leaves ratings occasionally and he leaves a lot of them. So uh, uh, I'd like to get uh, ratings from people who are sane. Uh, and uh, please join us again next week as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. 